D10 normal saline at one and a half times maintenance. <laughs> This is Shafali, and you're listening to the Peds Admit Podcast. Today we are going to be talking about something that gives me maybe the most anxiety as a pediatric resident, and that is when you're sitting in the ED and a patient rolls in in metabolic crisis. Right. The metabolic crisis, the metabolic patient. Um, really, every time I take care of one of these kids, I feel like I have more questions than answers and could really use a better background. Yeah, 100%. I feel like it's one of those things that we, we learn it a lot, but every time we learn it, it feels like we're doing it for the first time. And so I think that's why today we're really fortunate to be sitting down with Dr. Deborah Gear. She is an outstanding teacher. She's the director. Director of Genetic and Genomic Education here at Children's. She also sits on the board of directors for the Society of Inherited Metabolic Disorders. And most importantly, she's a former children's resident. Woo woo! <laughs> so, without further ado, here's Deborah Gear. We are so excited to be here with Dr. Gear, our one of our favorite genesis. Ooh, yeah. I get to be a favorite? Yay. You are yeah, a yes. Favorite. <laughs> well, you're my favorites too. So, yikes. <laughs> Good, good. Today we are going to talk about uh, disorders of metabolism. Really, mm-hmm. what do you do when the metabolic patient shows up in the ED and uh-huh. you're about to admit them? Uh-huh. So in disorders of metabolism in general, you either can't metabolize the energy source, be it lipids, proteins, or carbohydrates. You have dysfunction in specific organelles, mitochondria, peroxisome, and the lysosome. So we're going to talk about common presentations Great. and treatment plans for patients, and we'll roll through by category. I love it. Perfect. Let's do it. First up, let's talk about deficits in the metabolism of energy sources. So that would be lipids, protein, and carbohydrates. We can start with lipids. Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, they're my favorite. So <laughs> we're starting at the right place. My little passion is lipids. So this is exciting. Good. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> we like to think of it for lipids, very long chain, long chain, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. medium chain. Um, Acyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiencies is the ones that we... Well, and you know about those because they're the ones who come in most often. So Mm -hmm. if you've been in the emergency room, if you've been a pediatric resident, if you were even a med student, you've met those kids. Exactly. Yeah. Our basic understanding is that these kids cannot break down lipids for energy to produce energy. Mm -hmm. We know that carnitine (laughs) has a role in this. It binds fatty acids, transport them into the mitochondria for metabolism. Is that that accurate? Is that correct? (laughs) It is. So let's talk about carnitine for just a second. So carnitine is this amazing molecule, in my opinion. It is, in all honesty, very promiscuous. So it goes around serum and plasma and inside the cytoplasm of the cell and finds any carbon chain that isn't doing anything and takes it to the mitochondria. Because if you think about it, the mitochondria's job is to metabolize any type of carbon chain into something that turns to energy. So Carnitine goes and finds anything that has a carbon chain and takes it to the mitochondria. So you're exactly right. So carnitine binds to these fatty acids and takes it to the mitochondria so those fatty acids can be broken down for energy. Gotcha. All right. That's a great way of thinking about it, that they are promiscuous. I love love it. They don't care what the carbon chain is. Yeah, you know, let's be honest. They just don't care. Uh, so one thing we have learned is that these patients are at risk of rhabdo, rhabdomyolysis. Mm-hmm. What can we, can you explain kind of the path of yeah. how that happens? So let's just take a step back. If, if you were creating a human and you wanted muscle to have some energy source, what would you choose their energy source to be? Well, you don't want their energy source to be protein because the muscle is made of protein. So you don't want to eat yourself. Mm-hmm. So instead, muscle's favorite energy source is actually fats. So if you think about it, Mm -hmm. originally when we were running away from bears 
we had to use first a little bit of sugar to get away from the bear to get us started. And then we'd switch to fat stores as an energy source for our muscles. So why don't we just use sugar? Well, if you think about it, I really want to maintain that sugar for brain and for thought function and to cross the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. So that's why we use fat for energy, for muscle specifically. So when we think about these kids coming in, you mentioned the word rhabdo, right? Mm -hmm. So rhabdo just means you have really stressed out muscle that's breaking down. And I, I always tell people, like, I don't really care if you have rhabdo. Am I allowed to say that out loud? You are. You are. I'm a nice person, so I care that they have pain, but I really don't care. What I really care about is that their heart is also having those same stressors. And if I can't calm down the rhabdo, which is just a sign of muscle stress, I'm also having that heart stress. And I'm getting into more metabolic issues. So if I don't feed the muscle... It's going to break down and you're going to, we're all going to see the kid having pain and acting like rhabdo. Mm -hmm. But really the bigger issue is they're breaking down because they don't have enough nutrients for metabolic demand and their hearts also noticing they don't have enough nutrients. Mm -hmm. So when I hear rhabdo, I think, oh crap, what's their heart doing? More than, oh, I'm so sorry, they have pain. That's a good way to think about it because that leads into our, our next our next couple mm-hmm. of questions because we, we also think about cardiomyopathy in these patients. And, and, and that should always there, yeah. be, like, mm-hmm. if a kid comes in on rhabdo, you always want to think, is there any reason that this kid needs an EKG or an echo? You should think, do they have any evidence of, of cardiomyopathy yeah. or heart dysfunction or heart strain in the yeah. presence of this disorder going on? Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. What labs do you want when these kids come into the emergency room? Great question. So when I hear a kid having really weird leg pain and we don't know why, obviously I want a CK level. That's going to tell me an evidence of muscle stress. Often we'll also get a CMP because my AST and ALT, remember, they're not just in the liver. Mm -hmm. They're actually made also in muscle. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I can use my AST and ALT to look how stressed the muscle is because it's being released from the muscle, not just the liver. So if you call me and tell me, hey, I have a kid with rhabdo and now they're in liver failure, I will kind of be like, no, they're not. (laughs) It's okay. Take a deep breath. Give them some fluids. (laughs) Because what's happening is the the same chemicals we're used to monitoring for liver failure are actually really highly expressed in the muscle. So Mm -hmm. that's what we're seeing with those AST and ALT. Mm -hmm. So I want to know what they are, though. Because I can watch them just like I watch the CK level mm-hmm. as a measurement of muscle breakdown. Okay. Yeah. And then, like I said, if I'm in any doubt, I'm getting an EKG because I can get it quick. And then I've had a few kids who even got echoes in the ER if they have major EKG changes mm-hmm. okay. at the time of an ER admission. But that's kind of a, let's see if the EKG change is there uh-huh. or if they had a past history sure. okay. of acute cardiomyopathy. Okay. That's, yeah. that's great. Yeah. So we talked about fluids is basically the first line. Yeah. Right? Right. So let's go back. When we yeah. were talking, uh-huh. like in a perfect world, we would give them fat. Uh-huh. In an unperfect world, they'll tolerate glucose. So that's why we give them these huge amounts of glucose, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of them having to be nice to the brain, the brain have it all, we're going to make the glucose levels high enough that the muscle feels like, oh, I can use this too. Mm-hmm. So that's where we get this magical glucose infusion rate of between 5 and 10. Okay. And that's where we, here at Children's at least, come up with this D10 normal saline at one and a half times maintenance. Because <laughs> that gives you a glucose infusion rate of 7.5 and I like averages. Oh, perfect. Yeah. That's where that comes that's from. That's where it comes from. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. And then you'll also find that depending on the type of lipid disorder they have, mm-hmm. we will tell you to feed them the lipids they can use. Mm-hmm. 
So if they have a very long chain disorder where they can't break down the very long chains, mm -hmm. then we tell you, hey, give them some medium chain lipid. If they have MCAD, so they can't break down medium chain lipids, then we'll say, hey, go ahead and let them breastfeed and get some long chains. So we give them what they can use and give them extra fluids to make up for what they can't use. Okay. So it's the combination of things. Okay. And, and one thing, if you're in the emergency room, always be a little suspicious if you see that someone has an allergy to intralipids. Mm. That might be some geneticist way of telling you they have a very long chain fatty acid disorder. Because that would be someone who shouldn't get intralipids. So yeah. that would be like one clue yeah. on a list of like, who has an allergy to intralipids? Right. That's crazy, right? right? Yeah. But sometimes these very long chain kids will put that on their MAR so that people know. Wow. That's so great to know. I had no idea. And yes, yeah. I have seen that before. And yes, it's been confusing. To and you're like, why is this an allergy? <laughs> yeah, That's how crazy. How do they even discover this allergy? Yeah. <laughs> Were they on TBN? And they didn't bring, how do they know? You how know? do you get anaphylaxis to, <laughs> exactly. to lipids? Exactly. 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 So that's, that's really good to yeah. know. What are some of the life-threatening consequences yeah. um, that these patients are at risk of experiencing? So the most common and early life-threatening issue is cardiac. So these are kids that can honestly show up in cardiac failure. For example, we had a three-year-old with a very long-chain fatty acid disorder who came in in cardiac failure after he was at a family picnic and ate a cheeseburger with bacon. Because he didn't know he wasn't supposed to. So he got this huge load of fat. It overwhelmed his mitochondria and put him into cardiac failure because of it. So things like that where we can have acute onset of cardiomyopathies mm -hmm. is, is what makes it life-threatening. Yeah. If we think about long-term, if you have recurrent stress over time, you can have, obviously, muscle breakdown in the heart. So over time, you get into problems. Some kids have liver dysfunction, depending on how many times they've had these episodes. Mm -hmm. And then some other organs of the body that people don't think about often is the retina. So they can have a lot of retinal changes, so it can end up with blindness or retinal differences because the retina loves to use fat for energy too. So when we think about these really complex kids, yeah. we try to put in our genetics notes, hey, these are the 10 things we care about. So sometimes taking that 20 seconds to go look at the assessment and plan and say, oh, you know, the fact that they acutely have vision changes would be a big deal to me because that could be because the retina has had more damage than we expected with this acute episode. Uh -huh. But that's the other reason why if you call us, we often will know these kids yeah. because we know these kids. <laughs> we might be able to say, hey, that kid needs an EKG uh -huh. because they're a cardiac more issue. And other kids might have more issues with vomiting or more kids, you know, depending on the kid, we might be able to help direct you of what the biggest issues are. So always think about the eye. I, on the side. Yeah, on the side. <laughs> like it's, it can yeah. be another thing. Yeah, I mean, liver, like don't but, miss it. But, but remember, liver, yeah. heart's the big one. Heart's the big one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Not, that. Not, not, not always. Also Stabilize the yeah. <laughs> and let's, Don't forget about that. Yeah, exactly. That's really what I mean. I am going to go always back once. Heart. <laughs> heart wins. Heart never wins. Heart wins. <laughs> the other thing to think about is if you can't use fats for energy, and your only other thing that you know how to use is sugar, you can have hypoglycemia in end stage of these kids when they're really, really sick because the muscle has to use something. So it's, it could use up your sugar, especially if you're then having a kid who has lots of pain because of muscle breakdown. And obviously kids won't move. They won't eat well. So suddenly you get into the spiral of their CKs go up. They're not feeding well and they spiral. And that's when you start getting into the hypoglycemias. Yeah. So it's a combination of cardiac and hypoglycemia. Yeah. And depending on the kid, I'm going to choose one or the other as my main issue. Okay. Yeah, it is. Yeah.
I love lipids. They're so cool, right? <laughs> they are cool. Now, Have now. I convinced you now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you've convinced me. <laughs> There's not, there wasn't much <laughs> Alice, have I convinced you? Now we're applying you? genetics. Okay. <laughs> now we're switching. And now for everyone who wants to be a genetics resident. Okay. That was a lot of information. Let's break it down. When we talk about lipid metabolism, the first thing that we did is review what carnitine is. Carnitine is a compound that travels around the cytoplasm of the cell, grabbing up any spare fatty acid chains and taking them to the mitochondria so that they can be used for energy. Then we discussed acyl-CoA dehydrogenation deficiencies. This can include very long chain, long chain, and medium chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiencies, depending on which lipid the kid can't break down. When these kids come in, you should know that they're at risk for rhabdomyolysis because muscles preferentially use lipids for energy. When they come in, Deb recommends, of course, calling genetics and reading the genetics note, but also grabbing a CK level because they are at risk for rhabdo and a CMP because in these kids, they can develop a transaminitis. For us, transaminitis usually indicates acute hepatocellular injury, but you might see a bump in the LFTs just from rhabdomyolysis. Now, most importantly, they're at risk of acute cardiomyopathy because cardiac muscle preferentially uses lipids as well. You want to ask yourself, are they hemodynamically stable? Do they have a history of acute cardiomyopathy? And should I grab an EKG to look for acute changes? After you talk to genetics and stabilize them, consider calling cardiology and get in an echocardiogram, depending on how often they tend to get cardiomyopathy as part of their episodes or how at risk they are. They are also at risk of retinal damage and vision loss because the retina uses lipids for energy. You treat these kids by getting them out of their catabolic state. In the end stages of an acute catabolic episode for these kids, you might even find them to be hypoglycemic, but this is a pretty ominous sign. You want to treat them by giving them glucose as fast as possible. You're shooting for a glucose infusion rate or GIR of 5 to 10 here. A quick and way of getting to that GIR is to start D10 normal saline at one and a half times ma the maintenance rate, which should approximate a GIR of about 7.5. All right, let's move on to the next thing. Okay. Ooh, the next one. That's good. All right. So now let's move on to proteins and kids Ooh. that can't break down proteins. Great. So we're going to take one step back if that's okay. Yes. You know, I'm a nerd. Mm -hmm. So let's remember proteins are made up of amino acids. Mm -hmm. And the first step in turning any protein into energy is to take that amino acid and break it up into its two components. The amino gets put in through the urea cycle to make urine or urea going to urine. That's where we get the word urine from. And then the acid gets processed through multiple different pathways. And they're called the organic acid disorders because it's from the acids from amino acid. So let's take a step back. If you can't break down the ammonia group, then you have high ammonia levels. And those kids are going to be the ones that obviously you're going to check an ammonia level on. Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. fair? Yes. Makes yes. sense, right? Yeah. That all makes sense. And those are the kids who are going to have the brain swelling. And there's a lot of reasons why you have brain swelling, and you should go online and watch a YouTube video on that sometime. How's yes. that? Yes. There's six Absolutely. different reasons, and yes. it's very complicated. Yes. And we might circle back when we talk about uh, We can talk about that later yeah. if we want to. But those are the ammonia disorders and the urea cycle disorders. The organic acid disorders, you have this double hit of both having an issue with you can't turn your amino acid into energy because that organic acid is supposed to get metabolized into something in the TCA cycle. The TCA cycle is your energy cycle. Remember how you go from 
from, I don't know, I think they do this in third grade now, where you have glycolysis <laughs> and the TCA cycle and the electron transport yeah. chain, and then uh-huh. you get ATP. Uh-huh. Well, the organic acids take those, or, those acids and turn them into intermediates in the TCA cycle. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I figured all this out in, in med school, I was like, that's so cool that it does that. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this is blowing me away. Why did I never know this before? It was amazing. So if we think about organic acidemia, what happens is there's a block in one of those pathways. Mm-hmm. So in those disorders, it's that specific single pathway that usually gets stuck. Mm-hmm. Okay, so proteins are made up of amino acids. They get broken down into amino groups and organic acid groups. The amino groups are notable because they become ammonia as soon as you remove all of the associated carbon chains. In urea cycle disorders, you can't effectively utilize the amino groups, and you're at risk of ammonia buildup. This is so important because high ammonia levels give you risk of cerebral edema. I've heard that you lose IQ points for every hour that your ammonia level is super elevated. In organic acid disorders, you can't break down the organic acid component of the protein. Usually, these organic acids enter the TCA cycle and give you energy, but in organic acid disorders, they'll just start to build up and cause problems. So let's start with the kids that can't break down specific amino acids. Love it. Which one should we start with first? So let's start with PKU. In PKU, you can't break down phenylalanine. That's right. So technically, you can't turn phenylalanine into tyrosine. Okay. And the reason that's important is tyrosine is how we make a lot of our neurotransmitters. It's also how we make the pigment on our skin. So if you can't make neurotransmitters, you can't make the skin pigment, you're going to have, honestly, pale children with severe developmental disabilities. The other thing we can tell you is that high phenylalanine levels cause a buildup of phenylalanine in the brain, and that directly causes neuron damage. So you get this double hit of you can't do your neurotransmitters and you have buildup of something that's toxic. So in PKU, what we do is we give kids a low phenylalanine diet and a high tyrosine diet. And with diet alone, most of the time, we can keep kids safe. The trick is we have to give them enough phenylalanine to grow, but not so much phenylalanine that it accumulates in their bodies. So these are kids that we often will see in clinic every one to two weeks for the first two to three months of life. And then we start seeing them, you know, three times a month and winnow it down. We even follow through adulthood. So we know women with PKU are at high risk of having... Um, babies with malformations if they don't have their phenylalanine levels controlled. So we're very aggressive with following people throughout their lifetimes. So even with treated PKU, we can still have a lot of ADHD, some learning differences, even if everything is done perfectly. So that's why we follow PKU for life. It was actually the first thing we screened for our newborn screen. Yes. We yeah. still call it the yeah. PKU sometimes. Yeah, yeah. but don't do that. Because <laughs> then parents freak out that they think middle. their child has PKU yeah. and then they call us. We're like, actually, your child doesn't have PKU. Something else, Something else completely. Yeah. We're just lazy doctors. We call it PKU all the time. All us lazy doctors. Yeah. So these PKU patients, are they mm-hmm. coming in um, and then they get the flu, they get viral gastro? Do they show up in a metabolic crisis? And why or why not? Yeah. They don't come in a metabolic crisis. These are kids we usually keep at home. So if you have high phenylalanine level for a few days or even a few weeks, it doesn't cause acute brain swelling or acute brain damage. It's damage over time. So it's when we look over a year's time that I care about the phenylalanine levels, not over a day's time. So for example, if I have a kid who has influenza, with PKU, they'll actually do a blood spot at home and mail it to us. Oh, wow. And we'll actually manage them with home blood spots 
throughout their illness. We'll change their formula amounts so they do formula for life with a low phenylalanine, high tyrosine formula. We might change how much natural protein they can have for a few weeks, but we can manage those at home because it's not an acute brain swelling. It's a chronic exposure to phenylalanine that causes the damage. Okay. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, Versus another one. Are we going to talk about MSUD next? So what about the good comparisons? These amino acids may be a little bit more acute. So if you're in the ED and you see a PKU kid, you're going to call me and I'd be like, eh, send them home. Get me a blood spot. Have fun. Give them some Zofran. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because I'm a nice person. I don't want them vomiting in the car. That's just mean. (laughs) But if I have a maple syrup urine disease kid come in and they even look like they might vomit, I'm freaking out and telling you to admit them. Is that fair? Yeah. 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 Patients with PKU can't turn the amino acid phenylalanine into the amino acid tyrosine. This causes damage for two reasons. Number one, if you can't make the amino acid tyrosine, you don't have an important neurotransmitter precursor. Number two, if phenylalanine builds up in the brain, it can cause direct neuron damage. Now, this condition is very high risk during the early periods of growth and very high risk during pregnancy. Geneticists treat it by tracking the fee levels and by giving a low phenylalanine, high tyrosine formula for nourishment. It's different than maple syrup urine disease because acute rise in phenylalanine doesn't cause immediate risk of cerebral edema. It just causes cerebral damage sort of more slowly over time. So in maple syrup urine disease, they can't convert three amino acids. And I always laugh. They stand for I love Vermont as a maple syrup urine. So acylucine, leucine, and valine. So I love Vermont, maple syrup. So those three amino acids can't be converted to the next steps in the pathway. And to be honest, you don't really need the next steps. I can give you the next steps. The biggest problem is that leucine, if it builds up, crosses the blood-brain barrier and causes cerebral edema and causes um, neuron swelling. That's the issue with maple syrup urine disease is the leucine. I always remind people, leucine is like the lucifer of the pathway. It's the leucine that's the issue. So how do we know if a kid has high leucine levels? The interesting thing is that alloisoleucine, which is a product of isoleucine, has a little bit of an odor. It smells like burnt sugar. If you think about how we named it maple syrup urine disease, remember back when they would harvest I have a great picture, honestly, from Little House on the Prairie. So go back to the first Little House in the Big Woods book. There's a picture of them cooking maple syrup to, like, um, when it came out of the tree, they'd cook it. And the edges of the pot would burn. And that's the smell that you smell on a kid with maple syrup urine disease. It's that burnt sugar smell. It's not like pancakes. Okay. You smell like pancakes? That's not me. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't send me kids that smell like pancakes. I don't care. I care if they smell like, like, like who burnt caramel in your diaper? That's my kids. And interestingly, if you look, the most common place that I get the odor isn't their diaper. It's in their earwax. So in their cerumen. Because it's going to stick there for a few days. So especially in a newborn, I'm going to, I sniff their ears. Is that not the weirdest thing I've ever heard? So if I come in and I find an esophalopathic baby, I actually smell them. Oh, wow. Because I can't get that leucine back right away. Ammonia is, remember, pneumonia disorders. I can get ammonia back within half an hour or an hour. Leucine is going to take me, best case scenario, if I have the lab tech waiting there and I get the blood, about five hours on the machine. So it's not fast. And our center is one of the few centers that I could even do it that fast. Many places it takes two or three weeks to come back. So 
how do I figure out if the baby in front of me has MSUD? First of all, if you're at a center that doesn't have a metabolist, that's a transfer. Mm-hmm. That baby's a transfer. You don't mess around with MSUD mm-hmm. because we can treat it. Yeah. So you don't play with that one. If you are at a, if, if, if they come in and we know they have MSUD, you're going to smell them. <laughs> you're going gonna to ask mom. Do they smell like when they were first diagnosed? And moms will say yes or no. They okay. know what the smell is because we teach so them the smell. We teach them, right? And then the second thing you're going to do acutely is obviously you got me a plasma amino acids, and I'm working on getting that run yeah. to figure out their leucine is. Yeah. You're going to get me a ketones, urine ketones. If you think about it, I can get urine ketones within minutes, right? Mm-hmm. What does a ketone tell me? Well, it tells me this kid is breaking down fat for energy. You're breaking down fat for energy. What else are you breaking down for energy? Protein. Muscle, right? Guess what the top three amino acids are in muscle? Isoleucine, leucine, and valine. That's why maple syrup urine disease kids are so brittle and so fragile. That's why we're obsessed with their urine ketones. (laughs) Because it's an indication that metabolically their body thinks they need more calories. And that means they're breaking down fat. And if they're breaking down fat... They're breaking down the big stake of isoleucine, leucine, and valine in their leg as well. So that's why we're so obsessed with ketones. That's something I can do right now mm-hmm. and get an answer for. Yeah. If you happen to live in Canada and you're listening to this, they actually have a test where they can look at one of the components um, and get it back in 30 minutes. We don't have it in the U.S. It's not FDA approved in the U.S., mm-hmm. but they can do it in Canada. Wow, so that's so move to something Canada. Something that's coming for these kids. <laughs> no, is a more... it's not probably coming. Oh, really? Sorry, that would be that would too be good to be true. Okay. What we would love to have? Can I wax poetic for a second? Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool to have a bedside leucine sensor, phenylalanine sensor, and ammonia sensor? You mean yes. like a like a glucose? Yeah, situation? yeah. Yeah. Can we all have dreams? That would be great. <laughs> okay, that's that's my little <laughs> waxing poetic <laughs> dream. Someday, <laughs> anyone out there going to invent that for me? I'll use it. Okay. I don't know where we're going next, so you're going to tell um, me. Great. So we talked about the leucine level. We talked yeah. about screening ketones. Yep. Um, depending on the presentation, do you have a lower threshold to CT these kids in the ED? Great um, question. So when do you CT versus MRI? They oh, have CT versus edema. fast MRI, depending on yeah. the availability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when should you think, I need to do something? So to be honest with you, I know their brain is swollen. If you can't wake them up, they're encephalopathic. They're hallucinating. They're acting unusual. I know they have brain swelling. Mm-hmm. You don't have to convince me. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do a CT, what are you going to do about it? It's always what right, I ask. Right. So, yeah. it's, so my guess is you're not going to do much about it. I'd rather you take your time and energy to treat it. Mm-hmm. So get the metabolism to slow down before you put them in a scanner where no one can see what they're doing. Okay. So I always say treat first, image second. Mm-hmm. All right. So the treatment, if you think about it, is I need them to quit breaking down their own muscle for energy. Mm-hmm. And even more, I need them to take whatever isoleucine, leucine, and valine, specifically the leucine that they have floating around, and I need to put it back into muscle because you can't pee out leucine. So you either have to dialyze it off or you have to grow into it. So how do I convince your body to turn something back into muscle? I can use so many calories that your body thinks, oh, I have all these calories. I'm going to grow. So how do we give calories? D10, normal sailing at one and a half times maintenance. And why normal sailing? Because they probably have some brain swelling. So it's it's nice neuroprotection. The other thing I'm going to do for these MSUD kids is I give them intralipids. So why am I giving intralipids? I'm giving them calories. 
I'm not using interlipids to grow. I'm hoping that they have all those fat metabolism we just talked about, that they're going to turn that into energy. So they have sugar energy and fat energy flooding their system. So their body's like, dude, I am well fed. Let's grow. Let's take this leucine and turn it back into muscle. The other thing you're going to give them is some isoleucine and some valine. And you're laughing at me now. Why am I giving them things they can't use? But remember, I want them to take the leucine, get rid of it, and put it back into muscle. And I have to get enough isoleucine and valine that all three get turned back into muscle. So what do I do for MSUD? I give them what they need, the isoleucine and the valine. I give them tons of calories through D10 and interlipids, and I give them salt through normal saline. So that's the first things to do. And you want to do that even while you're thinking, do I image or do I not image? So priority. Treat. Treat. And then image if you need to. Okay. And then if if they need to be, for example, MPO for an extended period of time, mm-hmm. um, it seems incredibly difficult to coordinate full TPN, including amino acids, with the balance that you need. Is that true? So if you were to ask me this question five years ago, there was actually MSUD TPN. It is no longer made. Oh, okay. Isn't that awful? So now nice. what we do is we do this very intricate little dance as you guys all know, you have to be NPO from formula for like four to six hours, and then you can have clears for a certain number of hours, and then you can have IV fluids. So we have this whole intricate plan for MSUD kids where they have a formula feed right before their NPO period of formula with no leucine, but with everything else they can use. We give them tons of protein. So that if there is any accumulation of leucine during that NPO period, it doesn't Mm -hmm. accumulate excessively. And then right after, we give them a ton of calories. Okay. So this sounds bad, but we we get our kids really fat and happy when they're NPO. And And you'll notice they usually gain weight. They usually gain weight (laughs) every time they come in for surgery. So I always love my MSUD kids are my roundest kids sometimes. (laughs) They're very cute and round. Yes. And then in general for these kids... um, we talk a little bit about floor management. Yeah. They spike a fever. They get vaccines. We're treating all fevers with Tylenol, ibuprofen, really yeah. avoiding the spike in metabolism well, in that regard. You're going to see that with our MSUD kids as well as any kid who has a chance of a metabolic decompensation, whether it's a very long chain kid, whether it's an MCAD kid, whether it's an MSUD kid, even a PKU kid, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. One of my goals is to decrease metabolic demand so they're not stressed. And one way to do that is to not let fevers get excessive. So I'm, I'm okay with them sitting at 99 or 100 if they're still eating and seem fine. I'm not okay with them being the 102, 103, 104. So that's why, especially if they're in the hospital, I'm going to aggressively treat those fevers to decrease metabolic demand. Okay. Patients with maple syrup urine disease can't break down the I love Vermont amino acids, isoleucine, leucine, and valine. Leucine buildup is the most concerning because it can cause acute cerebral edema. If you're concerned about maple syrup urine disease, you need a diagnostic set of plasma amino acid levels, and you'll be looking at the leucine. In a known maple syrup urine disease patient, you'll want those plasma amino acid levels to see what the leucine is, but you'll also want to screen for a catabolic state in a faster way. To do this, you can grab urine ketones. This will indicate whether or not they're breaking down fat for energy. If they're breaking down fat for energy, you're also concerned that they're breaking down muscle for energy and will not be able to utilize the leucine that's in their muscle. Another way to screen for a catabolic state is to grab a serum beta-hydroxybutyrate. 
This is the main metabolic product in ketoacidosis, and it'll help indicate if they're in a catabolic state. To get these patients out of a potential crisis with elevated leucine, you'll need to get them out of the catabolic state and start encouraging them to utilize the leucine in their blood to build muscle. To do this, your first line is D10 normal saline at one and a half maintenance rate for a nice high GIR. Your second line is to start intralipids, which will help provide calories and promote muscle growth. And your third line is dialysis to just directly remove leucine from the blood. And then something else, other common pediatric medications that might mm-hmm. shift kids from an anabolic state to a catabolic state. Oh, um, there's do, one that's evil in MSUD. Are you talking about, I'm asking about, can we give these kids steroids? Please do not give them steroids. Okay. Please, I beg you. So steroids, especially at MSUD, seem to really set these kids off. We don't know all the reasons why right now. I always tell people, I want this child alive. If they're having anaphylaxis or asthma at the level that you're worried you're going to have to intubate and keep them alive, give the steroids, but you better be calling me at the same time. Because if you think about it, we have just caused catabolism, but hopefully I've convinced you that I can turn around catabolism. I just have to know we did it. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want you to give more than you had to, but as long as you acknowledge I broke this child. Can we fix them? Yes. Yes, yes, we can. So airway, breathing, (laughs) circulation. Don't put them in a catabolic state. Well, exactly. If you have to, let us fix it. Make sure we know so that we can turn it around. And that's why steroids, especially on MSUD, almost all of them we have is allergies to steroids. So that people know, especially if they've had steroids before and had issues before. Not because we don't want you to... We always feel bad putting it as an allergy. Mm-hmm. especially for the ICUs, mm-hmm. we want we want these kids safe. So if that means the steroid is the safest thing to do, then you're forced into it. But we just need to know so we can fix it afterwards. We've had kids get dialyzed after steroids. Oh, no, I believe it. Yeah. It's yeah. because it's a, it's a big deal. It's such a common medication in the hospital. but And, and we yeah. give it, so, and I don't even want to, not willy-nilly routinely, but we give it often because we need to, right? We want to keep kids safe. And for most kids, steroids is a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's always about risk benefit of everything we do as pediatrics, right? Okay, what's next? Now, yeah. You never know what's going to come next. Now. You're right. It's, it's like a okay. lightning rattle. Homocystinuria. Let's talk about that. <laughs> I like to just say the name. <laughs> You're like, does she get excited about this one too? <laughs> I know, and you did, kind of. <laughs> um, I'm such a nerd, aren't I? That's <laughs> okay. Like this the is, this is the nerd podcast. Okay. Exactly, exactly. That's okay. It is, yeah. People are uh, driving and going running and stuff. It's fine. Yeah, they'll, exactly. they'll deal with this. Okay. <laughs> so do you, a minority of patients, mm-hmm. small amount of patients respond to paradoxine or vitamin B6? Um, we have one in our entire group. Wow. So I wouldn't expect it. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's a real small minority. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Very small. Um, so you usually treat with methionine restriction and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. B vitamin supplements. Okay. So they, their issue is that they can't break down methionine to starting off. So those, we're going to take yeah. a step back, actually. Yes. Okay. So it's not that they can't break methionine. So what happens is methionine gets uh-huh. converted to homocysteine. Okay. And then homocysteine gets turned back into methionine. It's like this circle. Okay. And on the side of the circle that takes homocysteine back to methionine mm-hmm. is where you have... I know this is getting crazy, right? That's where you have like B12. Mm-hmm. That's where you have all of your cobalamins, all mm-hmm. those things that you might have remembered from med school that you've decided to completely block yes. because it makes your head hurt. <laughs> the take home most important thing about this is homocysteine has a nasty side effect. Mm-hmm. And that side effect is homocysteine causes blood clots. 
right? Mm -hmm. So if your homocysteine is elevated, mm -hmm. you're at high risk for clots. Mm -hmm. Kids are not supposed to have strokes, right? Yes. Old people with bad decision-making are supposed to have strokes, not <laughs> little kids. Uh -huh. But if your homocysteine level is very high, you're at high risk of stroke. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, I don't care why your homocysteine level is high, any reason is going to cause that problem. Whether you can't convert homocysteine to methionine or you can't convert homocysteine to another product. No matter what your reason, you're going to have issues. Mm -hmm. So when we think about um, homocysteinurea, mm -hmm. the specific reason is because there's a step below homocysteine being converted to um, a metabolic end product mm -hmm. that is blocked. And some kids have B6 responsiveness. Like I said, we have one patient with that. The other group of kids that we see often admitted are the kids that can't convert homocysteine to methionine. This is weird. It's a pathway if you don't see the picture. I don't know how to explain it. It's like a big circle. <laughs> no, though. no, Just no. keeps but spinning. It, yeah, that, that does make sense. So yeah. the big thing when these kids come in an emergency mm -hmm. is to find out, was a med lost or missed? Uh -huh. And are they coming in because they're having an acute stroke? Mm -hmm. or are they coming in because they're sick and can't take their meds, so we're worried about a stroke? Mm -hmm. Those are the two approaches. Okay. So if you think about the medications we have to give, mm -hmm. they're very expensive. They're very hard to get. And we have large populations with um, low literacy levels that are on these medications. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's, it's like the psychosocial quadruple hit for some kids. Mm -hmm. One of the medications is an injectable, and they give the injectable every day at home. So you can imagine if you are going home with a newborn and you have to do an injection every day, plus give a very expensive second med, and both those meds together do the conversion of homocysteine back to methionine. And if you miss either med, you don't get the total conversion back. That's a really onerous medication plan. I, I'll be honest, I can barely take ibuprofen when I have a headache, right? I forget. I'm like, why do I have a headache? I should take something. And yet we're expecting these families to do all of this, to this conversion. So yes. if we're going from homocysteine to methionine. So the first thing is, are we missing a med? Or even more important, these kids, can they not take their medications because they're every child in the DMV area who has some gastro or vomiting or doesn't feel like eating or spit out their medications? Or can you guys think of any other reasons? There's so many. There's so, so many. Or, or, or the shipment didn't come. There we go. The prior off. The prior off. We're pretty good at those. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, or, or my favorite one, the shipment froze. Oh. Their medication sure. froze, froze yeah. and it pushed out of the syringes. So when mom got it, all the syringes were empty and there was medicine at the bottom of the box. Like you can't make That's this stuff up, right? <laughs> so in all of these cases, they come to the emergency room, uh -huh. not because they're acutely having a stroke, but if your homocysteine level is already borderline for stroke, I'm not going to let you hang out at home with no medication. Yeah, We're going to get that homocysteine down with medications. Mm -hmm. The second reason is if they're acutely stroking. And that's more important in that acute setting of what should we be thinking about now? Mm -hmm. So just like anyone with a stroke, or especially these kids, we want to get that homocysteine level down as fast as we can so that the stroke size doesn't get worse. Mm -hmm. I can't stop the stroke that started, but I should stop it from getting worse. Mm -hmm. So to be honest, I'm the one who's going to run with multiple syringes of injectable B12. And I'm going to request that they open it up. If you're at an outside hospital, if you're in the middle of Wyoming and you're running an emergency room, these are in carbon monoxide poisoning kits, cyanocobalamin. So if you call one of us and say, what do I do? I just got this kid. I was told that they have high homocysteine. I'm going to be like, 
break open the carbon monoxide kit, pull out the B12 and give it now. It's always your backup if you're in an emergency room somewhere. What that's going to do, it's not going to take all of that homocysteine and get rid of it, but it's going to get a good number down. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to find out. Now, ask the parents what medications they have. (laughs) So that's going to be the first thing is what can we give right away? The second is, I'm sure you're shocked by this, but we're going to have a lot of fluids. (laughs) Crazy, right? (laughs) You're like, dude, Deb, it's always the same answer. Let me guess. D10, normal, salient, one and a half, ten times. If you think about it, I don't want methionine being broken down from the muscle because of catabolism and making sure. the issue even bigger. Because yeah. there is homocysteine and methionine in the muscle. Not as much as some other disorders, but there is some there. So I want to stop that breakdown. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my mainstay. These kids are actually really kind of horrible to manage, to be blunt. They're hard. Yeah, yeah. Because if they're having a stroke, it's usually a massive stroke by the time it's acknowledged or found. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, and most of the time, we can't recover from a stroke that big. So we're going to have long-term sequelae most of the time. So imaging would be just like any other stroke. Yeah, do a stroke workup. Yeah. So just for some metabolic background here, in homocystinuria, the essential amino acid methionine gets turned into homocysteine via the activated methyl cycle. That homocysteine can then get turned back into the methionine using B12 and cobalamins as cofactors. So methionine to homocysteine, homocysteine to methionine, methionine to homocysteine, homocysteine with B12 and cobalamins to methionine. In homocystinuria, elevated homocysteine levels leads to a really high risk of blood clots and therefore a really high risk of thrombotic strokes. These kids can present because of difficulty obtaining their injectable cofactor medications. They can present because of poor PO leading to a catabolic state with concern that the methionine in their muscle is leading to elevated homocysteine levels in their blood. Or really most importantly, these kids can present because of acute stroke. You treat them by giving their injectable medications as fast as possible and putting them on the classic D10 normal saline at one and a half maintenance to force them out of that catabolic state into an anabolic state. If you're concerned for an acute stroke, go ahead and call stroke code. I think we, we pretty much, yeah, covered we, metabolic did, did I do it? These as well, right? Any, if we want to keep anything. Fever is same, same as the other yeah, fever anything is, that yeah. causes mm-hmm. catabolism yeah. can cause yeah. it. Uh-huh. The biggest issue is that they can't take their meds. Mm-hmm. So they're allowed to be at home with some Tylenol and a flu as yeah. long as they How can get their meds okay. in. The minute that they can or there's any whiff of yeah. Like, yeah, they okay. come in. Also, the other thing that we can do sometimes is we'll have them come in. If we can get a homocysteine the same day, mm-hmm. we'll make sure it's normal before they go home. So sometimes that might mean they have to stay overnight for some fluids. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can get them home once we know their homocysteine level is safe with whatever acute illness they have. Okay. We try. We yeah. try not to have them here all the time. Yeah. We don't always succeed. Yeah. Be home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Alice here with your final review. In this episode, we talked about the very long, long, and medium chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiencies, PKU maple syrup urine disease, and homocystinuria. In LCHAD, VLCHAD, and MCAD, these patients can't break down certain types of fat. For them, you're going to want to think about acute rhabdomyolysis and acute cardiomyopathy. When they come in, you go ahead, grab your CK, and start D10 normal at one and a half maintenance. If they've got any history of acute cardiomyopathy or any concern for hemodynamic instability, you're going to think about their heart immediately, grab an EKG, and probably call cards. Next, we've talked about PKU. 
These kids can't turn phenylalanine into tyrosine. They need a low phenylalanine, high tyrosine formula, and really close outpatient monitoring of their phenylalanine or fee levels. In contrast with maple syrup urine disease, kids with PKU are not at risk of acute cerebral edema because of phenylalanine buildup. They are at risk for like a slow, indolent neuron damage from elevated phenylalanine levels. Next, we've got maple syrup urine disease. In MSUD, these kids can't break down the I love Vermont amino acids, isoleucine, leucine, and valine. Leucine buildup specifically can cause acute cerebral edema. So if these kids can't tolerate PO, if they've got urine ketones, you're worried that they're breaking down muscle and getting too much leucine from their muscle. You want to get them out of a catabolic state with D10 normal at one and a half maintenance, and you're also going to want to avoid corticosteroids at all costs. Steroids sort of make the body break down muscle, and that's going to be a high leucine load for any of these kids. Okay, last but not least, we've got homocystinuria. In homocystinuria, these kids can't convert homocysteine back into methionine, probably because they're missing one of the associated cofactors. They get a significant buildup of homocysteine. We care about this because homocysteine elevation makes kids super hypercoagulable and puts them at risk for acute thrombotic strokes. Because these kids will need a unique blend of cofactors to help overcome whatever specific enzyme deficiency they have, they might come in because they can't take their medications or because they have an acute illness. If they roll into the ED, you want to do a complete neuro exam because they are at risk for thrombotic stroke and call a stroke code if you find anything. You'll also want to start D10 normal saline at one and a half maintenance and obviously call genetics to help figure out what cofactors they're on and what you can give them urgently to help drive the pathway forward. Okay. Well, I can't believe you made it to the end of the episode. Um, Follow us on Instagram, email us at pedsadmin at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. And we'll both be back next week to review genetics further. Thank you.